0: up by
1: song. the same take the world but give me sweet is comfortable
2: Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you that you are a living hope, that you are the God who raises the dead. So we praise you, Lord, that you have brought us from death to life, you have brought us from darkness to light, that, Lord, you have transformed us, and that you are conforming us, Lord, into your likeness as you set us apart for your glory. We praise you, Lord. We pray that all these things that we do together this morning would be done for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, we want to invite you at this time to greet one another in a safe and appropriate manner. So do so now. Well, welcome, Redemption Arcadia. That was mostly appropriate from what I saw. Appreciate you all being here this morning. We are one church. In 10 congregations across the state of Arizona, we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and so thankful that you have joined us today here in person, or whether or if you're at home catching us online, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, my name is Tyler Thompson. I'm one of the pastors here. I am the pastor of Worship and Communities and joined by three other pastors. We love to work together as a pastor team. So we're thankful that you're here today. If you are new here, we appreciate you being here. There are Connect cards at the Connect desk in the back. We'd love for you to fill one of those out, and that way we can follow up with you. If you have been here for longer than a week or two, if you've been here for uh, many years, we're thankful that you're here as well. Thank you for your faithfulness and continuing to walk and grow with us. We serve a faithful God and we want to respond to him with obedience and praise as well. So thankful that you're here. A couple of things just to let you know about that are coming up. Uh, First is that we are partnering with Hope Women's Center. There are some wonderful looking flyers in the back at the Connect desk. And after the service, if you would like to connect with Andrea. She would love to talk with you a little bit more about these. Hope Women's Center is a faith-based nonprofit that we partner with uh, that has served uh, women and children in the Valley for over 25 years. Uh, We are partnering with them for a summer drive, and so there's a whole bunch of uh, items here that they might need in May and June and July and August. We'd love for you to pick one of these up, and starting next week we can receive those donations for Hope Women's Center, so we'd love for you to participate with us in that. Uh, We also want to let you know that there is an RC Leaders Lunch today just after the service. Just a reminder for those of you that are RC Leaders. RCs, Redemption Communities, that's our version of small groups. Sometimes people say, what's an RC? It's our version of small groups. We would love for you to participate with us in small groups. And so if you're interested in actually joining a small group, please let me know. We'd love to get you uh, connected with a small group. Also, if you're interested in leading a small group, we'd love to, to talk with you about that as well. We could use some some more leaders and hosts of our RCs uh, coming up in the near future. So we'd love to talk with you about that today as well. With that said, we want to invite one of our Redemption community leaders up uh, for an All of Life interview this morning. From time to time, we do an All of Life interview, and that is just a time to be able to get to know a specific uh, uh, leader in the community or in the church, and, uh, every, and also to share with you how that person shepherds and participates with what God is doing in the, uh, c- the uh, community here at Redemption Arcadia. This is Dave Coulson, everybody. Dave Coulson. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, Dave. He uh, clearly, clearly needs no introduction. Thank you. We wow. yeah, have a couple of fans out there. One big one here. So your, na- your name is Dave, right? Yes. Okay, cool. These are going to get harder. The questions are going to get harder as we go on.
3: I that um, might be the case.
2: <laughs> uh, Dave, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do uh, in the community outside of church and that kind of thing?
3: Yeah, so I'm a Phoenix native and uh, went to school throughout uh, undergrad and then went to optometry school and. Portland Oregon and uh, decided to come back because I was tired of not seeing the sun so uh, and outside of that I've, I've been here back in Arizona for 14 years
2: fantastic and so if you need help with your vision Dave's the guy to see yeah that's right yes okay very good uh, so, so Dave has actually uh, been leading an RC for a little bit here, and uh, he ends up actually being a great shepherd of all people, but also specifically of singles. And I recently heard Frank, Pastor Frank uh, talk about what a great leader you are, uh, not only for singles, but for your, your group in general. And the last time that we actually had somebody up here that was talking about shepherding singles in the church, um, that was Jonathan Ammon, and he got married three months later. So it's kind of what you do if you want to get married, you start to lead an RC, you do an all-of-life interview, and then the the deal is sealed. Uh, uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Dave, let us know a little bit about uh, leading an RC and and kind of how that's been for you and and the experience of shepherding a group like that.
3: Yeah, so being here at Arcadia for 12 years, I've been in four RCs myself, and uh, throughout all of those groups, you know, things are... Are different and for different reasons uh, a group may disperse and and then uh, the most recent group to the one that uh, I'm I'm leading right now uh, I was in Josh Prather's group and really connected with some people I met uh, my good friend Ben Bear we decided to be uh, become roommates and then decided uh, or, or rather the the church was looking for new leaders and and we birthed a, a group out of Josh Prather's RC and and uh, and then the groups kind of
2: formed how it formed And you're still alive today, so that's good. So if you're thinking about being an RC leader, then Dave is living proof that it's going to be okay. Uh, Let us know, so you've had all kinds of people in your group, but you've ended up also having uh, quite a number of singles in your group. Can you tell us a little bit about just what it's been to shepherd singles in your group? Yeah, so again,
3: I think groups form as they form, but there's a lot of, um, you know, in, in these groups, there's a lot of relatability when, uh, when you have similar interests, but also a, a similar like life season. And so that seems to have been at least initially how our group formed was uh, that singles were kind of drawn to the group, and, and not just singles in particular. And like you said, we, did, we do have a pretty good representation of, of ages, but um, it, it seems like singles that were into the late 20s or even beyond because that seems to be somewhat of an even different category of, of singleness, as I know from experience. Um, so, yeah, so as as the group formed, uh, you know, it, it's, it's obvious, I think, just in, in, in general, how necessary and good and messy it is to be shepherding and to be along with people in any season in life, and singleness has its own, uh, it's wrought it's with its
2: own uh, things, uh, good and bad. Uh, What would you want singles in the church to know? Uh, I know we were talking a little bit about how there's sort of this, uh, there can be this idea that marriage is sort of plan A and and being single in the church is kind of plan B, uh, and we we don't want people to feel that way. What are some things that you would want uh, singles in the church to know as you continue to walk with them?
3: Yeah, it's not plan B, first of all. and I, I think that's really important uh, to get at what we talk about all the time and, and hear about uh, is that a- anything can be elevated to a level beyond our first love. And if that's the case, then we can see things as Plan A or Plan B or uh, the priority or, or get the priorities out of out of the correct alignment. And I think that's so helpful too, uh, living in a community in, in in general and in in our communities, our smaller communities, to to feel that that there is. Um, that that we're all prioritizing Jesus first, and that we don't see that wherever we are in life as a, a maybe a you're almost there or you're not quite complete yet because we're complete in Him.
2: Yeah, I appreciate the way that Paul says it. First Corinthians seven, he's talking about how he, he he hopes that the people that are single stay single, and he hopes that the people that are married stay married. And then he says that I hope everybody's like like me. And of course, Paul, Paul being single and, and, and following the Lord's lead. So I appreciate that, that thought that you had on, in the heart that for, not, for letting people know that it's not sort of plan A, plan B. What are some things uh, with that that um, singles can be doing within the church uh, to be able to contribute uh, towards what God is doing at Redemption Arcadia?
3: Yeah, so we, we tend to, in general, I think, have a, a schedule that allows for for service. And the ability to serve and, and to um, uh, to come alongside those in the church who are who are in need and in different ways and I, I think it 's uh, maybe often the case that the way that we interact or the way that we reach out um, is sometimes not we, we, we can sometimes admittedly feel perhaps inconvenienced uh, because of seasons that other people are in, like they have young kids or a family and and that that 's something that uh, I, I think I'm, I'm encouraged by and, and other uh, people that I serve with who are single, like, like Ben, who's just got a real servant's heart to, to see the need and to, and to meet it because we, we have, I think, that nobility, not necessarily being uh, connected in a marriage or, or
2: often having families. Yeah. So that's one thing I think for the, for the singles in the room that we would want for you to understand is that uh we we know that you have unique contributions to be able to give to the body of Christ. Uh for those that are not, that are not single in the room, uh what are some things that the church can be doing in order to bless singles? Yeah, so I I think it's really
3: great too to to be reminded of how important community is no matter where we're at in our season. It's essential and we we can't understand the full depth of of God's love outside of community. And that's where I think it would be really uh, amazing for both sides, both singles and and those who are married, to to reach out. But if you're asking the question of how can uh, married couples, how can the church reach out to singles, I think in particular is to get into community, to not be of av- necessarily avoiding it or to not be scared of it because it's different. It's I think it's different. Uh, it's a different feeling. I imagine being on the married side of having a family or or a different uh, not not in a single uh, singleness position to to reach out or to be in community in the same way because there are a lot of differences there, but that's so important because we gain so much from understanding uh, life from a different angle and how God is working through, that, uh, through our lives.
2: Yeah, and I think that's a good encouragement for all of us with a number of different different categories for us to reach out beyond our comfort zone and be able to connect with one another, learn and grow from each other, and, and how God's uh, blessed us with that kind of community. So, uh, Dave's group meets on Tuesday nights, and uh, I think he's got some space in his group. And so, if all of you want to join him on Tuesday, that that'll be that'll be great. You don't have to be single. <laughs> you don't. Yeah, yeah. Anybody, anybody, welcome. Um, let me pray for you, Dave, and for uh, your group, uh, for your practice, and also uh, for in any of the. Uh, the folks that are your shepherding, and, and, and also just in general for those of us in uh, this church to be able to think through this idea of singleness and how we can contribute with one another in a way that's uh, glorifying to the Lord. God, thank you so much for Dave, and, and we do uh, praise you for his leadership uh, here at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, we're so thankful, Lord, for His uh, the stewarding of his gifts, uh, both inside the church and outside the church, and uh, with his practice in op- optometry, we pray, pray that you would bless him there. Uh, God, we pray that you would uh, bless him as he continues to, to uh, shepherd his group, and Lord, that uh, all of us, as we consider how we might uh, step out of our comfort zones in order to uh, connect with others that are different than us, we pray that you be glorified in 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 both the uni- unity of the church, the diversity of the church, and that all these things, Lord, may be done uh, to your glory. We pray that each of us, uh, whether we're single, whether we're married, uh, whether that we're part of a family or not, Lord, that you would allow for us to contribute the unique things and gifts that you have for us for the edification of your church. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Would you stand? Yes. Please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. This amazing young lady would like to read for us this morning.
4: John 11, 7, 3, 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. (laughs)
5: Thank you, Charlotte. It is obvious that you have been to the Ben Bear School of Scripture Reading. Thank you for that. So um, uh, good morning, everybody. We're glad that you're here. If you are um, if you're here for the first time, my name is Frank. I'm also one of the pastors here. And we're just blessed by the fact that you've chosen to be here uh, this morning. And for those of you who are saying, I didn't choose anything. I lost a bet. Well, we're glad that you're here as well. So. Um, I, let me just add this, uh, I, my endorsement for what Dave and Ben do in their group, um, a couple or three times a year, I invite myself to their group and I head over there. And I know the people in there, most of the people in there well enough to know that they're not on their best behavior just because one of the pastors shows up to their group. And it's, it is really a great group. I, I would just encourage you to consider uh, getting involved in any RC, but uh, theirs is a great place uh, to start. So. Um, We've been talking in the book of John, the last chapter, chapter 10, a lot about this imagery of of the shepherd and the sheep and how desperately sheep need a shepherd. And so I didn't have this available in the last two weeks, so I thought I'd show it uh, this week uh, just to transition us into chapter 11. But this is a video of how um, when a sheep is rescued by by Jesus, and we're the sheep. When we are rescued by Jesus, generally, this is what happens right after we're rescued, so. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. You don't, you don't need Jesus just for a minute, OK? You need him the whole time. So we are working our way through the book of John. Oh, it, you guys showed it in slow motion, too. It's awesome. So we're looking at chapter 11. 11 is a fairly long chapter. We're going to take it in two parts, but this first part is going to be 44 verses. Uh, we decided not to have Charlotte read all 44 verses because she said she wouldn't. So... Um, this is the story of the raising of Lazarus, and it's, it's, uh, it's right in the middle of, of the gospel, and this event is important um, for many reasons, but here are five that I want to just review before we get into it. Number one, it is the capstone of Jesus' miracles in the book of John. There's like a progression of his miracles in the book of John, and raising somebody from the dead is certainly the biggest and brightest of the miracles. Second of all, this... Again, this miracle points to Jesus' deity, and also he has another I am statement in the midst of this, I am the resurrection and life. So this event in chapter 11 points yet again to Jesus' deity, and I would argue that it is his closing argument now because he's been doing this all along. And this is pretty much his closing argument. Everybody has to make a decision at this point. And the decision doesn't go well temporally for Jesus because it's after this that we move right into the crucifixion narrative for the rest of the Gospel of John. Number three, um, this, this miracle strengthens the faith of his disciples while bringing in new believers. And we'll see that next week with verses 45 through 57. And then number four, this event leads directly to his fate on the cross. I've already mentioned that, and it's true. And then number five, most important for us today, this event asks this question. Do we trust Jesus and his timing? And his timing. Do we trust Jesus and his timing? So, yes, I'm going to read every verse today. We're going to go through that. The public reading of Scripture is important, and, and uh, it's helpful, and we're going to make comments along the way and uh, uh, proclaim the Gospel and teach God's Word and hope that uh, the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and applies it to the hearts of the people of God here. So starting with verses one and th- 1 through 4. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went to Jesus, saying, Lord, uh, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard of it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are brothers and sisters living in community And they are great friends of Jesus, very close to Jesus. So frankly, it is weird that he would not respond by going right away to Lazarus being ill. So if you think this is a strange response by Jesus, yes, it is. But we have to remember that Jesus' response comes from the uh, place that Jesus is highly differentiated from you and I. And his ministry and his mission and his purpose is always going to be different than the purpose and the mission and the perspective and the perception that you and I are going to have. So the question comes up right away, will we trust Jesus and his timing? And that word word in verse 3 translated love, Jesus loves him. That word there, we've talked about this before, many different ancient Greek words for love that word there is phileo, which is sibling love. So it, what John is saying is that Jesus loved Lazarus like a brother. And then in verse four he says, this illness will not lead to death, it's for the glory of God. And this is very much like chapter nine and the blind man. There was a purpose in Lazarus' death, just like there was a purpose in this man being born blind and staying blind for 40 years, that exceeds any worldly concern. There's something else going on here that you and I as mere mortals are not going to be able to discern until Jesus actually works and teaches. And so in a sense, because of the way it's playing out, you would say that this is a trial or it's, a, it's tribulation or it's a challenge, it's suffering for Mary and Martha. And I would guess it was probably the same for Lazarus as well. But there's something that we need to remember about trials or challenges or tribulation in this life. Number one, God uses them in our life to develop our character. That's clear throughout Scripture, the way Scripture talks about our tribulation. Second of all, God uses them to develop our sanctifying faith. So there is this faith that we, where we say, yes, I believe in Jesus and I accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. But there's also the, 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 the faith that sustains us and sanctifies us. Uh, Sanctification would be that process of uh, beginning to look more and more and more through your life journey like Jesus. Although we never accomplish it perfectly in this lifetime, the idea is that we are moving toward that. So it's Paul saying in Romans chapter 8, we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. And then third, God uses tribulation and trials uh, to bring glory to him as he works all things together for good... For everyone? No. Specifically, it says in Romans, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So he uses them for our good and for his glory. That's how our founding pastor, Tom, used to say it. And so we ask the question again, will we trust Jesus in his timing? So the next 12 verses, 5 through 16. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you were going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. That's sort of a confusing little riddle that we'll talk about. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to Jesus, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. In other words, let's stay here. Now Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us now go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, that we may die with him. So the word translated love in verse 5 now changes to agapeo, or agape love. So again, context is important. Uh, Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus also with great compassion, uh, selfless uh, sacrifice, and affection. So great compassion and affection is the agape love. And as a response, verse 6 says, he stayed there two days longer. (laughs) He loves them with compassion and affection and selfless sacrifice, but he doesn't go right away. Now, he is going to do something. Most of us know the story. He's going to do something, and he's going to do something, as Paul says in Ephesians, he's going to do something far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think or even imagine. Again, let me make this case again. Often the worst way to define love is how we receive it or how we perceive it. The worst way to define love is how we receive it or how we perceive it. We need to start trusting that maybe the best love that comes our way doesn't look anything like the love according to our narrow and selfish definition, but is, in fact, a way better love. That, again, is a trust issue, both of who Jesus is and his timing. Because what will happen with Lazarus is way better than Jesus going soon enough to just keep him from dying. And then verses 9 and 10, if you look at those, again, very similar to chapter 9 with the day and night thing, Jesus is reiterating here again that when he is on mission and when he is doing his ministry, the light of day shines on his work and he will not stumble, so you should just follow me where I'm going. But he also says darkness is coming and that's when he's going to be executed on the cross. That's when the darkness comes. But there are other meanings behind this lightness and darkness that we begin to see here as well. Furthermore, based on what we've seen throughout chapters 6 through 10... This lightness indicates that Jesus walks in the light as compared to the professional religious people who are stumbling around in the darkness who just can't seem to get who Jesus is and who don't want to get who Jesus is. And third, historically, daylight is symbolic of God's will being present with his people, whereas darkness is a symbol of God's will being absent from his people. So you see all of the symbolism that Jesus is teaching in the midst of this. In verses 11 through 15, yes, the professional religious people had trouble following Jesus and getting him, but we also find that at times his disciples struggle with it as well. Jesus likes to speak in these riddles and these parables, and sometimes the disciples are just like, "Ah, we don't get it. Could you please explain that for us? That's why John says, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. But also at the end there, um, if you know anything about the, the book of Esther and the story of Esther in the Old Testament, Thomas sounds a little bit like Esther there. So that, that story is uh, about 500 years prior to when Jesus was around. Uh, this is a, a group of Jews that after the Babylonian exile had moved to further east to Persia, some had come back to Jerusalem, but some had actually moved further east to the Persian capital of Susa, including Esther and her uncle Mordecai. And read the story, it's an amazing story. Esther, who is Jewish, ends up um, winning some kind of a competition. That's the only thing I'll say, you have to read it for yourself. But she wins a competition for the king's affection and he ends up marrying her out of um, many, many different um, candidates. And she becomes the queen. She's a Jewish woman who is now the queen in Persia, and she's married to the most powerful man in the world, King Xerxes. We like to call him Xerxes the Xerxes, okay? So she's married to this guy. And in the meantime, Haman, who is Xerxes' right-hand man, and Xerxes kind of hatched this plot for the genocide of all Jews in Persia. So we're gonna kill all the Jews. Now, Xerxes doesn't seem to understand that his wife is also Jewish, but they're going to do this. They're going to to commit genocide against all of the Jews throughout Persia. So Mordecai, uh, uh, Esther's uncle, gets wind of this, and so he sends a message to Esther and says, hey, I need to talk to you, so she talks to him. And he says, look, you're going to have to go to the king and you're going to have to stop this. You're going to have to come clean and let him know what's going on and you got to stop this genocide. And she says, there's no way. Because, and we're going to see this in Nehemiah this summer, Even if you're the king's wife, even if you're the king's cupbearer, even if you're the king's right-hand man or right-hand woman, the most important person in the world other than the king, even if you're that person, if you go into the king's presence without being invited by the king, he can lop off your head, and he has done so many times in the past. So Esther responds to her uncle and says, I'm not going before him without being called. He hasn't called me in 30 days. I'm not going to just walk in there. He'll probably kill me. And Mordecai presses her and he says, look, if you don't do this, God's people will be saved in some other way. So you have a choice. Are you going to be used or not? And what does she say? She says, all right, I'm going to go. And if I die, I die. And I think what we need to try to understand here is that neither Esther nor Thomas in this situation, were necessarily complaining. I would make the argument that they weren't necessarily complaining, but really what they were doing was they were finally getting that they needed to be used by God at any cost. And they were willing to do that. It's, it's a, yes, it's a sense of fatalism. I learned about fatalism from my, from my father, who... Uh, his senior year at UCLA, he was in the Naval ROTC at UCLA. That would be a school on the West Coast, for those of you who are Sun Devils fans, OK? Um, he, he was a senior there, and he was in the Naval ROTC when, uh, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And so in May, they allowed him to graduate. They kept him there. They allowed him to graduate. And he liked to say that uh, he received his diploma in, in one hand and his orders to report to uh, the Naval base in Honolulu in his other hand in two weeks. So graduating and going to World War II. And he was gonna be a gunnery officer on the destroyer Farragut. And so he had two weeks to figure out what he was gonna do. And what he did, and this is not necessarily what my father told me, but what his father told me, his grandfather told me this story. My father went and sold everything that he had, turned everything that he owned, including what my father would describe as a beautiful Ford sedan, uh, sold everything. He sold it for $500 sold everything, took the cash and gave it to his parents and said, I'm probably not going to come back, so I thought I'd do the best thing that I could do for you. That is a sense of fatalism, but it is also an understanding of a call on your life that is going to involve sacrifice. So I think, I think Thomas here, maybe, maybe I'm reading this with rose-colored glasses, but I think what Thomas is doing here is he's saying, look, we are his disciples. We are the sheep in his fold and he's the shepherd. He knows what's best. We're going to have to follow him and go. And I'll tell you, after witnessing this event, don't you think that they were glad that they went? Right? So, look now at the next <clears throat> sorry, 21 verses. Take a sip of caffeine and I will read these to you. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb 4 days. That's important. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, Jesus is not afraid to ask the question. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into, this, into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was moved deeply in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So these tombs... Some of you know, the, the, they had these tombs prepared well in advance for the dead. And they were usually carved out of the side of a mountain. They were like a cave. And, and usually, in fact, most often, you would be laid in there with other corpses. They, they, there wasn't just a tomb for one. There was usually uh, several shelves where they would lay, lay different people. And then they would cover the tomb with a stone, usually very heavy stone. And that's where you were, you were buried. And that's what it's describing there. Now we see in verses 17 through 37, one of the things that we see is that Jesus gives Martha truth and he gives Mary compassion. They're both asking the same thing. They're both saying the same thing. Jesus gives one of them truth and he gives the other compassion. Why? Well, this is going to stun you. This is going to shock you. This is going to be something that you note takers need to write down. Different people need different help. Are you blown away by that insight? Here you go. Fairness is actually treating people differently. Fairness is actually treating different people people differently. I know so many of you are like, I don't like that. You know why? Because you're so worried that it's not gonna be fair to you. That's why you don't like it. But in fact, that's what fairness really is. Again, shocking. We have two daughters, Shelby and Darby. They're four years apart. I'm just going to shock you. They're different. Isn't that amazing? They're different. They're wired differently. They look different. Their interests are often different. They're different people. Jackie and I as parents treated them differently in many respects based on their needs because they had different needs, based on um, our relationship with them, based on how they were wired. We treated them differently instead of treating them as clients who all get the same protocol. I think that's a mistake that a lot of parents make, treating your kids like clients because, you know, they're, they're going to just get the same protocol. And one of the reasons you do that is because, of course, the kids are always saying, hey, you did this for them, but you didn't do it for me. And, and really, if they told you the truth, they'd go, I don't really want it. I just don't like the fact that you gave them attention and not me. Okay? Fairness is treating people differently based on who they are and their needs. But, but here you go, here's one of the challenges with that. <laughs> that means you gotta get into community. That means you gotta get into relationship. That means you gotta sit down with people and get to know them and start scratching around, metaphorically, scratching around. You, you need to dig deep, you need to, you need to start to do some disclosure. This is what community is about. You need to learn about each other so that you can understand what each other's needs are so that we can practice mutual submission that is beneficial to everybody. I love how so many people think mutual submission means same submission. It doesn't. Mutual submission is based on the needs and the wiring of the people that you are serving. I am going to submit differently to Jackie than I am going to submit, for instance, to Tyler. Wait, you're the but you're the the elder who's on the elder. Wait, doesn't Tyler work for you? Yeah, if you want to build a hierarchy, okay, but the gospel requires something different. We need to be in relationship and community and understand each other so that we can serve each other and submit to one another. Jesus loved both Mary and Martha, but he also knew what they needed in that moment, and that was a beautiful, a beautiful thing. But let's also talk about the fact that both of them came and questioned Jesus' timing. Mary and Martha sound like us. You and me, you and me, we are sure that God's, that our timing is better than God's. We are sure that our plan is better than God's. We are sure that our wisdom is way better than God's. People love this story of Lazarus, and I understand why. It's really fun when Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Some of you right now are going, would you just get to when he comes out of the tomb? But because of how we romanticize this story, we often miss one of the most important points. Jesus' timing is better than ours. We need to trust. Jesus' plan is better than ours. We need to trust. Jesus' wisdom is better than ours, and we need to trust. And then he says, I'm the resurrection and life. It's another I am statement. And he says the result of that statement is that you need to believe. You need to believe. Jesus calls Martha to faith, belief, It's the whole point of John writing this gospel. And the I am statement, resurrection and life, it's actually two sides of the same coin. Jesus is saying the same thing twice, but differently, resurrection and life. It's kind of like Hebrew poetry, you know? In the Old Testament, we have a lot of this ancient Hebrew poetry, and sometimes people read it and say, it doesn't rhyme, it doesn't do anything for me. No, Hebrew poetry is not rhyming poetry. Hebrew poetry is wordplay poetry. Hebrew poetry is, is metaphor and synecdoche. That's not the place in Connecticut. It's a, it's a, it's a rhetorical device. It's, it's simile. It's parallelism. It's double entendre. That's what makes Hebrew poetry so beautiful is, is the wordplay in it. That's what Jesus is doing here. And it's not just that Jesus brings about resurrection and life. He is the resurrection and life. And verse 33 says that Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled. I'll talk more about this at the end, but just understand that what, the reason he's deeply moved and greatly troubled is that he's overwhelmed with grief, indignation, and anger by the sad state of sin, death, and his own execution that is looming close. Also, verse 33, I think it's interesting, and this whole section here around verse 33, in their culture, in their context, this is a weird thing that they used to do. When there was a memorial service or a funeral or whatever, you would actually go out and hire professional mourners who did not know the person who died and did not know you. But you would go and hire professional mourners. You would spend money to bring people in to cry and weep and grieve and throw dust in the air and wear sackcloth. Because the more mourners you had, the more important the person was. It was a way of honoring the person. So there are all these people that are following the women around. Most of them didn't even know Mary and Martha. They're just, they're just there for a professional, Uh, reason. Interesting. But in verse 35, again, understanding the words that are used, the weeping that Jesus wept is not this loud attention-seeking dirge of the others who are being paid, but rather his weeping is actually a silent lament for a fallen and unbelieving world that experiences not only physical but spiritual death. That's why he was weeping, and he was weeping silently. And for me, verse 37, let me just reread verse 37. I don't know why, certain things really get at me. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Even in the midst of this emotional and painful moment, some of them find a way to disparage somebody who has actually done a lot of good. Isn't that amazing? You know, for some people, no matter what Jesus does, it'll never be enough, no matter what he does. No matter what he does. Look at the next two verses, 38 and 39. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for it has been he has been dead for four days. Four days. Yeah, I've said this before, he was polysyllabic dead. He was dead. He was like Texas dead, okay? He was really dead, that's the point. And, and I have mentioned this too, there's also one translation, I think it's the old King James, where she doesn't say, certainly there's an odor now, she says, surely, Lord, he stinketh. I like that word stinketh, okay? So the next time, you know, a spouse or a friend walks in from the gym, you should say, surely you stinketh, okay? That will really impress them, it's biblical, okay? But the four days is actually really important in their context because many Jews believed, lots, lots of the Jews believed, that for three days, the soul of a dead person would hover over the body in case the body was somehow revived, but by the end of the third day, the soul would leave. So that's why it's four days. The, the, the important point of the four days is to make sure that everybody understands that this is truly a miracle. This is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. And then the last five verses, 40 through 44. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Some people say it's a good thing he said Lazarus, otherwise everything would have been flying out of that tomb. I don't know if that's true. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. They were probably in such shock and awe that they're standing, and he's like, would you please unwrap him? He might appreciate that if you would just unwrap him, okay? Now, this is a great miracle, to be sure. That's an understatement. But this event also foreshadows Jesus' own permanent resurrection. His permanent resurrection. Uh, notice again in verse 40 the, uh, the emphasis on believing. The main point of this miracle is that people would believe. And again, in verse 43, it's very specific. He wants Lazarus to come out of the tomb. I think this is odd. John does not record Lazarus' reaction to this miracle. Wouldn't you just like to know? Wouldn't you just love it if somebody from like ESPN walked up to him and said, Oh, that was great, Lazarus. What do you, what do you think about coming out of there alive? What do you think? Oh, I'm going to go to Disneyland, okay? I, mean, what do you, I would like to know how Lazarus reacted to this. I think that would be fascinating. Here's why John doesn't tell us. It's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to look at Jesus as... Messiah as God, the Savior, and to believe. That's the point of the story. It's to strengthen our faith. And you know, Lazarus does die again physically. Professional religious people, even in the next chapter, chapter 12, try to kill him because he is the evidence that God is at work, making it rationally irrefutable. So they want to kill him. I tell you, I often hear, you know, if God would just do a miracle in my life, then I would believe. No, you would not. We're going to find out next week, verses 45 through 57, that there were people, many people who saw this happen who still did not believe. Can you imagine that? They witnessed this, and they still did not believe. They still did not believe. And I just guarantee, you, I don't, it's not in the text, I'm just supposing this, but I think that it's very likely that there were people in that audience who saw the other miracles. They saw the water turning into wine, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing the healings, the blind man, all of that. And they, in their mind, they thought, or even they said it out loud, you know, that's, that's cool, but if he raised somebody from the dead, then I would believe, and they still didn't believe. They, they just keep moving the goalposts on him. So let's be real. Let's ask this question. What will it take for people to believe? It's the movement of the Holy Spirit, y'all. I I can train and prepare and, and be as eloquent as possible. I'm beginning to sound like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 now. And I can deliver this with great rhetoric and persuasion, but if the Holy Spirit isn't moving, these are just, I'm just a symbol that's being beat on. That's it. The Holy Spirit has to move in our lives. So is the Spirit moving for you right now? We evangelicals, put a ton of emphasis on this, the Word, the Word of God. We love the Bible. We ain't evangelicals. We're just all about the Word. Got to teach the Word. Got to preach the Word. And, and, and I got to tell you something, that's good. We should. It's really important. But when we make this important to the exclusion of everything else, including the movement and the filling and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we've got problems. And we need to recognize that that's a blind spot for us. We've got problems. We need to welcome the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that uncomfortable feeling that you have is not the bagel you had this morning. That uncomfortable feeling you have is the Spirit moving in you. How do I know when the Spirit is moving in me? I'm assuming some of you might be asking that. I think that's a great question. I know the Spirit is moving in me really just from essentially two things, two things. This is is kind of my test, okay? When I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me to do something, it is never something that contradicts what's in here. The Holy Spirit wrote this through His people, through God's people. He's not going to tell me something that contradicts this. Now, it's fascinating to me. As a pastor, I hear all the time, the Holy Spirit told me to do this. That contradicts what God's Word says. Yeah, I know, but who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust God's Word? Are we going to trust the Spirit who is alive and active in me right now and just so happens to be affirming and confirming what my greatest heart's desires are, even though they're wrong? Now, they don't say that last part. But they wrap their desires in all of this Holy Spirit piety because they need to because it's contradicting what God's Word says. Quit wrapping your demon desires in piety. And claiming that it's the Holy Spirit moving in you. That's what we need to do. That's the first test. Is there anything in God's word that would contradict that? Here's the second test. And this is is actually even harder. Okay, here's the second one. His leading always contradicts what I think is best, what I prefer, what I want, and what would make me most comfortable. Always. I never thought I would be called into pastoral ministry, when I, when I made my shift out of the marketplace and into um, going to school and going to seminary and all of that stuff, when I made that shift, I was sure I was going to teach, like at the college level or seminary level, that was what God was calling me to do, that's what I, that's what I wanted to do, so I wanted to teach, I did, I, I honestly, I'll be honest with you, I didn't want the messiness of leading a church, you know? But then God started working in my life and he started to show me things and he started doing things. And the next thing you know, I really felt like he was leading me to lead this church at 42nd Street in Greenway, 21 years ago, Paradise Valley Community Church. And I fought with God and I fought with him. It was not what I wanted. And then that's when I made my famous deal with God. I said, all right, I'll do it as long as I never have to do prison ministry, because that sounds like a lot of work and no return on investment, okay? <laughs> And I didn't know it at the time, but God was laughing. I said, we're good, right, God? Yes, deal. Three months later, Leslie Baranzini comes into my life, and she says, I want you to minister to my son who's down in Florence prison, and the rest is history. I'm knee-deep in prison ministry now. Not what I wanted to do, not what I thought would be best. That was the Holy Spirit. There's another time, too. About three months after I became a pastor, I was miserable. I'm telling you, I was I was miserable. Came home and I told Jackie, I said, those khaki pants and red polos at Target, they're looking really good to me right now, man. I'd like to go to work for Target. I know retail, I could, I could whip that place into shape really fast, okay? And it would be better than doing this. So I decided to go on a hike down outside of uh, Casa Grande. And, uh, by the way, on my way down to see somebody in uh, Tucson Prison, in, interestingly enough. And I said, this hike, I'm gonna just deal with God. And so I started the hike, I was all alone, and I just said to God, I said, God, what would stop me from leaving this job and going and doing something different? And as clear as a bell, I heard God say into my spirit, That's your problem, Frank. You think it's a job. It's a calling. It's a calling. And I had four hours left on my hike with nothing to talk to God about. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we were going to wrestle this whole time. The Holy Spirit moves by not contradicting his word and really by giving what eventually will be the desires of our hearts. Maybe we just don't know it yet. But he's contradicting what we want in in the moment. Last thing, it says that Jesus was deeply moved in verse 33. He was deeply moved about death. He was deeply re- moved about death as a result of sin, as the result of unbelief, as a result of willful ignorance and outright, outright rebellion against God. As a result, of his, as a result he, he, was, he was deeply moved because of his ultimate need for us, his ultimate need for him to go to the cross. Jesus sees death as evil. He condemns death as evil, but he's the resurrection in life. He's the antidote, if you want to put it that way. That's why he's the greatest gift ever. In fact, let me put it this way. Jesus hates death even more than he hates sin. Yes, sin is bad, But it leads to death. So he's not thrilled about sin either, but death is ultimate. That's the thing he hates the most. Jesus forgave sin on the cross, but he gives life through his resurrection. Sin is bad, but the curse of sin is death, and that's the bad news. Jesus came to be the pure and perfect and final sacrifice for our sins so that we would be forgiven, but ultimately he came so that we would have life and have it abundantly. And that's the good news. That's the greatest news. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you'd like to talk to somebody about that, we've got pastors and deacons and elders all around here. Just ask and you can talk to somebody here. Um, Or if somebody brought you, talk to them or they can lead you to the right place. And during communion, we're going to have people in the wings also that you can come and pray with as well. So we're gonna invite the band up now as I, as I pray so that we can go into communion and we can have our last song together. Father God, we, do, uh, we thank you for your word and it's truth again. We thank you for this great miracle of Lazarus, but I just pray that we would see the whole and full picture of what you were doing with this miracle. It's not just that Lazarus came out of the tomb, but that you are the resurrection and life. That's the key to this whole deal. We thank you for that. We love you and we praise you for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So communion again, if you haven't gotten a communion packet, you can uh, go to the lobby right now and grab one. That would be great. That Ben and I got to do this at a wedding yesterday. Uh, The couple's first communion as as married people. It was just so beautiful. The the breaking of the bread, Jesus' body. And sharing that. And then drinking the wine, sharing that with them, the the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant for the remission of sins. It was both in that moment for them. It was a confession and a celebration, and that's what it is for us here today as well as we take this communion together and sing this last song. Let's do that now.
2: Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. A couple of quick things before I give us the benediction. Uh, First, it's just that I want to say thank you to Brennan and Emily who have been interning with us in the worship ministry this semester. This is kind of the capstone service for them. Yeah. So thank you to Brennan and Emily and the team for leading us in worship today. Secondly, don't forget to grab one of these flyers in the back at the Connect Desk. For hope women's center and last reminder that the rc leaders lunch comes after second service in room eight today let me give us this benediction after roman out of romans chapter eight it says this if christ is in you although the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.